0: we are back. Uh, Another bit of follow-up we didn't get to in the first segment. Uh, Unfortunately, the body of Spaulding Gray uh, was apparently recovered from the chilly waters around New York City. Apparently, he did commit suicide in a state of uh, deep depression. I never had a chance to hear Spaulding Gray. Of course, as we mentioned on the show a couple weeks ago, he was supposed to have been at the Mondavi Center. I'm not sure why it is he attracted such a uh, devoted bunch of fans, but I know people... uh, They really did like to hear uh, his monologues. Uh, My friend Lisa said she went to go see him three times with her husband, Gordon. I guess I'll just try and and do him justice by quoting from Swimming to Cambodia. Basically, a long-extended monologue about his work in the movie The Killing Fields, which was later itself made into a motion picture titled Swimming to Cambodia. Uh, His book opens as follows. It was the first day off in a long time, and all of us were trying to get a little rest and relaxation out by the pool of this big, modern hotel that looked something like a prison. If I had to call it anything, I would call it a pleasure prison. It was the kind of place you might come to on a package tour out of Bangkok. You'd come down on a chartered bus, and you'd probably not wander off the grounds because of the high barbed wire fence they had to keep you in. And the bandits out. And every so often, you'd hear shotguns going off as the hotel guards fired at rabid dogs down along the beach on the Gulf of Siam. But if you really wanted to walk on the beach, all you had to learn was to pick up a piece of seaweed, shake it in the dog's face, and everything would be hunky-dory. And a couple other passings, I think, are worthy of note. Daniel J. Boorstin passed away last week, a quiet historian who transformed the Library of Congress, author of some very interesting books, foremost in my mind, The Discoverers. An excellent read. I highly recommend it. Daniel Borston was 90 years of age. He had a very long and productive life. Passing away at age 89 was Jerome Lawrence last week, the playwright who co-authored both Inherit the Wind and Mame. I'm sorry to say I've never seen the movie Inherit the Wind. Uh, it's a classic with Spencer Tracy. I've been hearing about it since high school. Uh, I guess I've had the DVD in my hand several times in the last year. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually buy the darn thing and watch it. Um, it's a fictionalized retelling of the monkey trial of John T. Scopes. A schoolmaster in Tennessee was arrested for teaching the theory of evolution. It's rather sad that, uh, you know, 80 years after uh, Scopes, which I believe took place in 1924, we are living in a country that is now making every effort to restrict the teaching of evolution in public schools in many, many jurisdictions across the land. Not a lot of progress in that. All right, joining us now to talk about... The most interesting film I've seen in a good long while is our own special media correspondent, Gary Chu. Gary, Hello, back.
1: Doug. How are you?
0: I'm fine. I think we should talk um, about The Fog of War. It, I, I was knocked out by this movie, and I think you were too.
1: I was really pleased that it won the Oscar. Uh, I think it was a wise choice of all the Academy members for a lot of reasons, which we can kind of go over. Uh, the movie itself and how it applies to today and also uh, uh, for people who can really vividly remember Vietnam and also people who m- remember Vietnam in terms of being involved in it are also those who were possibly subject to having to serve and fight in Vietnam. I fall into that category.
0: Yes, and, and I was uh, right up against it myself. I was the, the, the first year that, um, that they, oh, I was here they canceled the draft on. People in my peer group are waiting for the call-up, and uh, at the last minute, I guess it was like in February of March, they called it off in time for the election. Mm Mm-hmm. But let's talk about this uh, most interesting central character around which this uh, documentary is weaved, Robert McNamara. It's all about McNamara's recollections dating back to World War II, and most interestingly about uh, his term as Secretary of Defense under Kennedy and Johnson, during which time the Vietnam War. Uh, started up and got really rolling along.
1: You know, I, I can remember when uh, McNamara was uh, selected by Kennedy uh, to be, be the Secretary of Defense, and of course the, uh, the documentary uh, chronicles that very vividly, as we both know. But living the time with the memory uh, of it in uh, my mind, I, I do, didn't remember... Robert McNamara as being such a force. Of course, I was a fairly young person at the time, and I really wasn't attuned to those things as more like uh, as I am today. But I didn't know he was such an intellectual and such a, an accomplished, uh, intelligent person.
0: He really comes across as a brilliant individual in the movie, which he certainly was. Uh, I don't know, Gary, if you ever read the book uh, The the Best and the Brightest?
1: Uh, no, I didn't. Albert I'm with it.
0: Yeah, he's got a, There's a there's a moment in there where he's talking about McNamara as he's being shown slide after slide after slide after slide about so many, so many supplies of this and so many ships of that are going to Vietnam and this and that, and as this guy's showing him the slides, he stops and says, "Wait a minute, wait a minute,". "That doesn't agree with the slide about eight slides ago," and the guy showing him the slides is thinking like, hey, "What is he crazy?" He backs the slide projector up and they compare this slide versus the one from like eight or nine slides before, and by God, there was an inconsistency. And McNamara was that smart and that much able to absorb data that he was able to see the discrepancy right at the top of his head. Brilliant guy.
1: What blew me over, and I think you too, uh, uh, was the fact that uh, uh, I think when the documentary footage was shot of McNamara talking into the camera, on the fog of war. That what is it? Was he about 85?
0: He's 85, I believe. Yeah. Uh,
1: what a brilliant, sharp man at 85. I hope I can be maybe 75 percent of that <laughs> when I'm 85, if I make it. Well, I'm, I'll tell you, the guy was really is really sharp as a tack.
0: I give him all the credit in the world. I think probably you do too, for the fact that here he is at 85, going back to take a look back, and he says at one point in the film, there's a lot of people out to think I'm a son of a bitch. Mm-hmm. And he's attempting to address that. Is he a son of a bitch? And he's putting his side forward of uh, why I did what I did mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, knowing that he's going to pull off on some issues mm-hmm. and not on the others.
1: I agree with you on that. The only thing that I felt that uh, might have been a little self-serving in terms of it was when he was, particularly when he was talking about uh, when he was at Ford, he was talking about uh, how they were trying to get seat belts. Started in cars, and people right. didn't want to use seatbelts. Right. I felt like he was trying to uh, absolve himself just a little bit for his uh, involvement with the, the escalation of the Vietnam War.
0: It's hard to imagine in making a documentary like this if he wasn't attempting to atone and explain for what uh, this many years later what happened.
1: I, yeah, I agree, and, and and but I think the most impressive thing that I felt, and I can't recite these, but you know what? A, there are eleven lessons in the documentary. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and each of these lessons are put up on the screen before it goes into that particular section of the documentary, and and some of them are so simple yet so but so full of wisdom. Uh, it would be nice if more of those lessons were being applied today to international affairs and also particularly to uh, the war that started just about a year ago right now in Iraq.
0: It is sort of amazing how, how little we've apparently learned from Vietnam till Iraq, in, in my opinion.
1: Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, uh, a movie that I flashed back to uh, about a year ago that came out, which is currently running on cable television, I just watched it, again, was The Quiet American with Michael Caine. Yes,
0: you, you reviewed that for us on this show uh, last year. Mm-hmm.
1: And it was, it was all about uh, the, America's earliest involvement with Vietnam uh, as the French were pulling out. And uh, I think uh, that would be a good uh, sequence of films to watch to see The Quiet American, which is a dramatization of a Graham Greene novel, right. but then uh, to watch the documentary The Fog of War.
0: I I, I couldn't agree with you you more.
1: They they, they they work in tandem very nicely, I think.
0: I I think anyone who's listening to our voices right now, and if they haven't seen either of these films, they should make a point to see them both. They're they're just fantastic uh, cinematic efforts.
1: You know, I was just thinking after I saw The uh, Fog of War and listening to McNamara talk to me, so to speak, uh, from from the screen of the movie, uh, how would you like to sit down... And have dinner with that guy, and and have a you know have a couple of drinks after dinner, and just chat with him, and have him open up to you. Wouldn't that be an exciting evening?
0: Yes, uh, yes. What, what questions would you ask him, Doug? Uh, you know, the question I would ask him that the movie never quite never quite gets to. It talks talks about in 1964. They show on the screen a reel-to-reel tape turning, and you hear Lyndon Johnson's voice, and you hear McNamara's voice as he's starting to lean on McNamara. He's just mm-hmm. become president. It's early in the year, certainly after Kennedy's been assassinated in November of 63. And he says to McNamara um, something to the effect of, you know, I sat there in the meetings when the president would say we can't win in Vietnam, and here's his secretary of defense agreeing with him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I thought, you know you shouldn't, you, shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't have that attitude, more or less starting the idea of, you know what, we can go into Vietnam and we can win this thing. And McNamara makes quite clear in the documentary that uh, in his opinion, what he was recommending was going to be followed through on, and that had Kennedy lived, they would have continued to take people out of Vietnam, the order had started, and that that would have continued, and there would have been no such war as later ensued. And yet, it appears to me that Johnson leaned on McNamara for that war, and then McNamara acquiesced and went along. Mm-hmm. But in the movie, they're asking him to say more about his, what you know his involvement, and at the end, you see that he declines to really go all the way.
1: He talks about how people or governments can avoid things like this in the future to a certain degree, but he doesn't really want to reflect on the ultimate questions or ultimatums possibly that were given to him in terms of what uh, that escalated and made Vietnam into the, I think I guess it was the longest war we were involved in. Yes. 10 years or
0: yeah. It seemed like
1: it went on forever for me
0: as a young man. Well, really, it really raged from 64 to 73. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's my, my, that's exactly my impression is that you're seeing in this documentary a, a fascinating look and, and examining the issue a lot of different ways, talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. He has a very poignant scene describing what happened when Kennedy was uh, assassinated and how he actually picked the site in Arlington Cemetery where, uh, where uh, Kennedy's body now resides.
1: Very, very touching scene.
0: And, um, it's the World War Two stuff. Is also we didn't even talk about. It. It's fascinating about how he assisted the decision of Curtis Lemay and so many people to where they were going to bomb, where they were going to target.
1: He comes down on Curtis Lemay pretty heavily, but at the same time says that when you're really fighting a war, these are the kind of guys you need.
0: Yes, and and I think you know there's a lot he would have to say. I think about Lyndon Johnson and how we got into that war that he's uh, he probably is going to take to his grave.
1: Yeah, he he didn't. He was not forthcoming in that area, and you know, it really kind of surprised me because he seemed to be such an open person about things to the point of vulnerability, you know. But in that one area, he just clammed up.
0: Well, at the end of the movie, he more or less says, you know, there's there's things I could say, and uh, and and Errol Morris, the documentarian, says to him. Well, it's sort of like you're damned if you do and damned if you don't. Mm-hmm. And he said exactly and I guess I'd rather be damned if I don't.
1: Yeah, and that, 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 that said, even though he didn't say anything, it said a lot. I really recommend the movie. In fact, I'm going to go back and see it again. Uh, it's it's a kind of a movie that uh, it's worthy of more than one viewing, and, and I'm so glad it won the Oscar.
0: Well, I am too. Let's send people over to the Tower Theater in Sacramento where it is playing. I think it'll be there for a while, and uh, by all means, by all means, take this film in. I concur. All right. Okay. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. Now, in a story that I could hardly believe, National Public Radio reported last week that the Bush administration was now setting out to encourage biodegradable landmines. I'm I'm not making this up. They thought that landmines that persisted were kind of getting a bad rap, and that we needed to go to the kind that would dissolve or go away after a certain set period of time. This reminds us of an interview we conducted uh, a couple of years ago with Carlton Heston, the brother of the famous actor Charlton Heston, on the subject of landmines. And I think, Mr. McMillan, it's time we dusted that off and played that for our listening audience. Mr. Heston, thank you for returning to our show. What's this we're hearing I about your efforts to promote landmines?
2: Well, that is incorrect. I am not promoting anything per se. I I'm just helping the ALMMA get a new positive message out to the general public.
0: Well, now, who exactly is the ALMMA?
2: The American Landmine Manufacturers Association, Doug.
0: These are are America's manufacturers of devices that blow up when stepped on.
2: That's what landmines do, Douglas. And besides, we're the world leaders in the field of touch-triggered chemical energy devices.
0: Well, I've heard that the USA was number one in making landmines.
2: Well, it's true, partner. The naysayers who don't think Uncle Sam has know-how in industry anymore have never seen the kind of quality product we export. It's amazing, Doug.
0: So a dictator who wants to create a no-man's land around his palace can thank the can-do spirit still found in manufacturers of reliable and cheap contact explosives.
2: Well, I didn't say cheap, Doug. If you want something shoddy, something cheap you'll have to look elsewhere. Libya, Iran, North Korea make cheap knockoffs. I wouldn't touch them with a 10-foot pole myself. They're plain unsafe.
0: Well, with all due respect, Mr. Heston, aren't devices that blow the legs off creatures unlikely enough to step on them inherently unsafe?
2: Well, I can proudly state that the ALMMA made products that are the safest you can buy. This is a tribute to the care that goes into the manufacture of them. You know, I don't think any other industry, even semiconductors, shows the innovation and precision we bring to our finished products. You know, people around the world know this, and they buy American, Doug. American!
0: So the balance of trade in the U.S. is being held together by microchips and landmines?
2: More than you know, they just go like a house of fire when you need them.
0: Well, when do you need landmines? Congress heard testimony indicating they had no utility for the Pentagon. And the Pentagon hired spokesmen to say they were useful to manufacture just the same. Well, they are. For whom?
2: For the honest citizens of the world who'd wish to purchase them. It's a free country, after all. You can buy what you want.
0: Well, now, Mr. Heston, which yeah. honest citizens need landmines? You know, the late Princess Diana was leading a very successful effort, to point out... Listen,
2: partner, if you want to take military advice from a gal who married British royalty, divorced, then cavorted with Egyptian playboys, well, be my guest. I'd rather listen to generals, heirs of the revolution that cut the ties to British monarchs when they say they are plenty useful. And they are plenty useful.
0: Well, these are generals hired to say that such a thing is useful, and they're hired by the manufacturers of the very product.
2: Look, I work for the ALMMA because they need a spokesman, Doug. I believe in the right to bear arms. Can a military man go to work for someone who makes a good damn product?
0: Well, he can, and you can. But tell me, why landmines are good?
2: I did. They do a wonderful business.
0: Well, why not sell crack at the PX? The U- U.S. arms industry can make a killing that way.
2: Crack is an illegal drug and a dangerous substance, harmful to the health.
0: I lost my head, I guess. Um. So what are you doing? Yeah, I did. What are you doing to support ALMMA?
2: we're well, we explaining to the public that our newest devices are not anti-personnel. That phrase sounds so negative. We want to be positive, Doug. And by the way, ALMMA has pledged not to market their products to children.
0: So kids will not be targeted by the no landline manufacturers. No
2: way, no way, no how. No sales to anyone under 15.
0: Well, if they're not anti-personnel, what are they pro
2: Well, we like to call them pro-pacification.
0: Pro-pacification. Devices that blow whatever steps on them to kingdom come.
2: Well, doesn't this sound better, Doug? Well, I guess it does. You're
0: damn well right it does. But, Mr. Heston, don't you think there is something wrong if the civilized nations of the world desire an end to landmines and U.S. manufacturers stand alone in opposition?
2: Well, I certainly do not. Other nations are unlikely to stop using them.
0: Well, why? We, have, we don't see poison gas used since World War I.
2: Coincidence. So,
0: soldiers are not shot with hollow point rounds. and, and, and Okay, admit, dumb as humanitarian bullets sound, a lot of combat vets owe their lives and limbs to the warring nations of the world adhering to such agreements. Isn't it time to add landmines to the list?
2: No, my friend. In my opinion, it is not that time. Well, why not? Not at all. Why not? Suppose the drug war needs to up the ante or something.
0: So if we need to clamp down on drug producers, we'll mine their fields. Maybe. You know, Colombia once said they'll stop selling cocaine in the world market when the U.S. stops selling arms.
2: See what I mean? They clearly have no intention of stopping and say so.
0: Well, yeah, that's half the Stand point. Them.
2: You know, in arms manufacturing and sales, America can be proud to say we are number one. Because we are, Douglas, we are. Well, I have to go now. I appreciate the form you've provided me. Let people think about these issues a bit. Folks often don't realize the importance of the sales that help drive our economy. The American Landmine Manufacturer Association, we say, a case of mines a week. That's all we ask. They are good for the economy, and that is good for you, my my. friend. Responsible use, Doug. That's our motto. Responsible use. You wouldn't let your kids use the oven without supervision, would you? Or the chainsaw? You wouldn't let your granny stroll on the freeway, would you?
0: Uh, No, I'm sure I wouldn't.
2: All right. Well, then I'll see you soon, and we'll talk about something else of major importance to this American country of ours.
0: All right. Well, thanks for coming, Mr. Heston. It should be noted before we leave this segment that the United States is the world's largest manufacturer of landmines. I'm Douglas Severich. You're listening to Radio Parallax, and this is KDVS 90.3 FM, Davis, Sacramento. Stay tuned to our third segment, where we'll be talking to Michael Salem. Mr. Salem is offering a $100,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the person or persons who killed Christopher O'Connor in New York City 17 years ago. He'll be here to talk to us about that case after this short break.